0: I came here in a time machine that you invented. Now I need your help to get back to the year 1985. Talk is
1: Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, mama. Talk is me. All right, welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pod of thunder and rock and roll and the exclusive home to the Duff McKagan joke of the week. Right,
0: chris jericho duff mckagan calling you hope everything's going well
1: for you everybody there out near listener land is doing well I, I don't know if i ever told you i had to work at this uh work at this factory uh, making little plastic
0: dracula models.
1: yeah and i, I only had one other co there so of course i had to make every second count every second count thank you very much goodbye every second count Get it? Every second count, Count Dracula. Uh, I had to think about that one for a minute, but even with Duff giving us the punchline twice, but thanks to him for delivering every single Friday without fail. And if it's more laughs that you're after, join me tomorrow night for the Saturday night special. It's Slash's birthday uh, today, so um, actually yesterday, uh, depending where you're listening to this and what time it is. Um, maybe I'll have to do a Slash Guns N' Roses sing along tomorrow night, the uh, SNS 16 is locked and loaded and ready to roll with more stories and Q&A that's spelled E-H. We'll do another sing-along. Like I said, bring your song requests. All the fun starts at 9 p.m. Eastern on Facebook Live and on uh, my YouTube channels. Tomorrow night, 9 Eastern, the Saturday special number 16. And thanks to everyone who checked out the debut episode uh, from the Winterpeggers. Me and Dave don't call them Spewy anymore. Spivak and Rybo did our first show. It's available on my official YouTube channel, if you're in need of a laugh, watch it. Uh, we'll be releasing new episodes of the Winnipeggers every Thursday morning on YouTube. This week, we're talking about uh, Dave's angry letter that he wrote to a hotel for bad service. We're debating what the uh, generous amount of shrimp should be. Two, two shrimp, four shrimp, six shrimp. Uh, and I tell everybody what I ate uh, the night that I beat The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin to become the first undisputed champion in WWE. Find out what I ate. It's not what you expect. It was not lobster thermidor. I'll tell you that. So all of that uh, on Winnipeggers. It's coming every Thursday morning on YouTube. Uh, just three old friends, just being idiots. So right now, one of my favorite movies this year is celebrating its 35th anniversary. I'm talking about Back to the Future. Back to the Future. And I've got Brad Gilmore, another diehard fan and Back to the Future expert, coming up today. Uh, Brad wrote a book called Back uh, from the Future. Back from the Future: A Celebration of the greatest time travel story ever told. It's got loads of trivia and behind-the-scenes stories about the making of the movie. He covers the history of the trilogy, the cartoon, the toys, the casting. Uh, Michael J. Fox was not the original Marty McFly. You're going to hear about that. He's going to share a lot of that today. Uh, and what he can't cover in an hour on Talk is Jericho, you can find on Brad's podcast, Back to the Future, the podcast. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can find his book everywhere you get books. And you can find the movie wherever you watch movies. Watch it. It's the 35th anniversary of Back to the Future. And we're going back with Brad Gilmore right now, here on Talk is Jericho. If we could somehow harness this lightning, channel it into the flux capacitor, it just might work. Next Saturday night, we're sending you back to the future. So a few months ago... um, I was at my house and I got a book sent to me in the mail. I don't remember exactly how that, how that came about, but you can tell me it was from Brad Gilmore. And it's called Back, Back From the Future, A Celebration of the Greatest Time Travel Story Ever Told. And I'm a huge Back to the Future fan. And lo and behold, a few days ago, it was the 35th anniversary of the release of Back to the Future. So I thought it'd be very timely, no pun intended, to do uh to do a show about one of my all time favorite movies and one of one of Brad's as well. So Brad, how did you end up sending me this book uh, in the mail? Well, uh, I'm I'm glad you got it first off. But
0: um, <laughs> I uh you know I I've you have the website Web is Jericho. And uh, I know James over there who helps run some stuff over there. I, I work in re- I work in wrestling as well. I work with Booker T with Reality of Wrestling. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And uh, so you know, I had his contact, and I said, I know I've read Jericho's books. I know Jericho's got to be a Back to the Future fan. So uh, I I went ahead and emailed him, and you know I think he reached out to you and said, yeah, you could send it on over. So I tried to send it with like a uh, with a yeah boy with it, but I could only get the <laughs> I, could, I could only get the book in the mail. <laughs> yeah. He drew a picture of a Yeah Boy, which was, works fine. That's good. I did. I did. I did. It was pretty good. It was pretty good if I do say so myself.
1: <laughs> so what do you do with uh, with Booker and Reality of Wrestling? So I've, I've been with Booker since
0: 2012. Uh, I'm one of the broadcasters on the show. And uh, Booker and I do a, a radio show called the Hall of Fame, uh, which you've actually been a guest on. Okay. We've been doing the radio now and podcast together, I don't know, man, five or six years and, uh, you know, I've just been writing a book ever since.
1: Well, that's great, man. So so you have experience, obviously, in broadcast, and I can tell um, and, and your writing is very good. The book is really cool. It's, it's a fun little uh, a fun little kind of a, a quick read about, about Back to the Future. So what kind of got you the idea to write a book about this movie? Well, you know, I mean,
0: I came to Back to the Future when I was young, like most people did. I mean, I, I didn't get a chance to see it in the theaters, but when I discovered it, it was just one of those movies that stick with you. Certain things stick with you. How old
1: were you when you discovered it? What year was that?
0: It was. Uh, I discovered it when I was about seven. So this was like ninety nine. Oh, maybe. wow. Okay. May- maybe ninety nine. Yeah. And when I when I discovered it, I mean, I saw it on all places, the Disney Channel, <laughs> and uh, I don't know. Instantly, I remember going back to school and saying. Hey, guys, if y'all heard of this movie, Back to the Future? I was my only one in the friend group who had even heard of it. Hmm. And it was something, I have older parents and, and, and older siblings, and it was something I was able to connect with them on, the movie. You know, it was so generational. It's such a family story at the root of it. So something about it connected with me. And it was 2015. There was It was the 30th anniversary of Back to the Future. And I wanted to listen. I was like, there's got to be a podcast about Back to the Future. So I went there to go try to find one, and there wasn't. And I was like, man, that sucks. And I was doing the show with Booker and everything. And I was like, maybe I could start the podcast. And so I started a Back to the Future podcast where we just talk about Back to the Future every single week. And I had people from the movies on. I've had Crispin Glover on, Leah Thompson, a bunch of people from the films. It just kind of grew. And, you know, millions of downloads later. Really? Yeah, I got in contact with a publisher and they were like, we would love for you to write a book about it. And I was like... (laughs) Let's go! I'm ready, and it was just right in time. That I finished it and turned in the manuscript right before the 35th anniversary.
1: You know what's so funny is is and, and and you said quite a few things there that that we can chat about, but it really is such a timeless movie. Once again, no pun intended, because um, when my kids started started getting old, they're, they're 16 and, and two 13 year old twins now, just like just like Booker you know, as they start getting older, you look for movies to watch because after you've watched every single freaking Disney and Pixar movie for them, <laughs> yeah. then you're like, well, let, let me start showing you some of the movies that I think you'll like. You know, Outsiders was, was a huge one for us. And now we're going through the horror movie theme of, of The Thing and, you know, all the Friday the 13th and that sort of thing. But when they were a little bit younger, Back to the Future was one of the first ones I can remember showing them. That and Stand By Me where these are movies about families and, and they're not risque, but they're, they're a little bit they're not for little kids. They're for kids that are starting to figure out what life's all about. And it really, it just connects all across the board. Like all of the boxes still check to this day on just how great of a movie it is, uh, even now, 35 years later.
0: Yeah, it, and that's another thing. It's generational. You know, I was thinking about it earlier because, like I said, I got it when I was seven. My brother, my oldest brother's 23 years older than me. So he was 30. He was 30 at the time. Wow. It was, we could both connect to it. My dad, you know, who's in his 70s now, mid 70s, he can connect to it. And I think that when you're older and you watch it, it's like, man, if I could go back to high school and I could talk to that girl, I could go you know, punch that guy in the face. I could stand up for myself. Right. That's what appeals to you when you're older. But when you're a kid, it's like. There's a time machine that's made out of a car that really exists and I can go you know, <laughs> back to the future or what have you. So there's all these elements that appeal no matter what age group you're in. And I feel like that's why, as you said, it's been so timeless because it doesn't matter how far we get removed from the 1980s. There's something about that story that's always going to resonate about. I mean, because the germ of the idea came from Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis, who, who wrote the movie and Robert Zemeckis directed it. The idea came when Bob Gale found his dad's yearbook in his attic and found out that his dad was the class president of the same high school he went to. Hmm. And he was like, man, I wonder if my dad and I would have been friends because I hated the guy who was the (laughs) class president of my high school. And that's where the germ of the idea said, oh, wait, what if there's this crazy story where they go back and you have to go to school with your parents and your dad's this big geek? Your mom's kind of a horn dog, and she's (laughs) after everybody. What would that be like? And, and that's kind of where this movie came from. And I think that that's something that everyone can
1: relate to. Like, man, would I have been friends with my parents? Especially kids, you know, kids in general, because it based, it's based around rock and roll, high school, romance, you know, your family. So it really skateboarding. It went, skateboarding, yeah. And it's funny, too. I first met Leah Thompson. Uh, I did a show back in 2005 called Celebrity Duets. And it wasn't that great for me, but one of the highlights was meeting Leah Thompson and, and getting to know her. She's such a cool lady. And then just a few, about last year, I went and did a, a Comic-Con in New Jersey, and she was on it at Atlantic City. And I ran into her. And as soon as you see her, like, she still has that vibe for guys like us. where like, I'm a little bit turned on, a little bit nervous. <laughs> yeah. A little bit like, oh, I, I, I want to give her my number. I, I, the, oh, my gosh. You know, it's It's Lorraine. It's Lorraine. And so she still has that that quality because of this movie. Yeah, when when I had her on the
0: podcast and I was talking to her, it, you know, I was like, I can't fanboy out too much because I got to be a professional. Right. But at one at one point, she called me a dream boat and I was like, you know, I could
1: I could die right now. <laughs> it's a wrap. Like I'm good. <laughs> I believe she even calls Marty a dreamboat at at, at one point, right? Yeah, she does. Yeah. How did you How did you get her on the show? How did you get Crispin on the show? I've had I've done 700 episodes of Talk Is Jericho. I've never had any uh, connection with those two ever. It, it was actually super random. With Leah, is I was sitting in bed
0: and I just got an email. She was doing a press tour because she directed an episode of The Goldbergs on ABC, right? And she was doing a press tour, and I, somehow I got on this email list of Would you like to have her on? And I actually had her on the day the book came out. Oh, right on. So I was like, this is, you know, density, as George McFly would say. <laughs> and uh, and I had her on. And, and it was Crispin was doing the same. He was promoting some movie. You know, he has a pretty tumultuous relationship with Back to the Future and, and the producers. So I wasn't sure how you know, receptive he was going to be. Like, you know, do you want to talk about the movie? But he brought it up. Like, he brought up Back to the Future, and we were talking about George McFly, because I think even though he wasn't in Back to the Future 2 or 3, his performance as George McFly is one of those, it's just a home run. It's incredible. He just knocked it out of the park, and it's so memorable. No matter what, his line deliveries, the way that he moved his body, the way he said things, so iconic. So you can tell he's, even though he's had all the issues with the character, and in Back to the Future 2 and 3, they actually hired another actor named Jeffrey Weissman, and they put prosthetics on his face to make him look like Crispin Glover, and that's kind of where like the, the root of the beef came for him and the, and the filmmakers, so even after all that and going through lawsuits and all this stuff, he
1: still, you can tell, loves that he was a part of that movie, and he had such an iconic character. Obviously, too, because he, I think he's one of those guys, because he's so flaky and weird, that's also wherein lies his acting genius, but... He just never got those bigger roles that let's say like a Joaquin Phoenix did. They're definitely cut from the same cloth. But why wasn't he in Back to the Future too? It's one of those he said he said things. If you talk to Bob Gale, who's the producer and co-creator
0: of Back to the Future, he says, Well, Crispin wanted too much money. He was asking for things, and an actor his, you know, size at the time would, you know, it was a little out of base right. for him to be asking for those things. And then Crispin says that he just kind of didn't, he didn't love the materialistic. Uh, ending so much of back to the future because if you remember the first one, you know Chrisman Glover's character George knocks out Biff and then when they go back to 1985, the McFly's house is nicer. they've got nicer cars, they've got better jobs, they have better clothes. And you know he kind of said, well, I didn't really like that and he had issues that he wanted to work on for the second script and it, it really didn't work out. So they went and hired a guy like I said, Jeffrey Wiseman put because when they did the old AJ makeup Chris, they took you know molds of all the actors' faces to age them up in the 80s so they still had these molds mm. so then they went and they put them on this new actor jeffrey weissman to make him look like george and if you remember in back to the future 2, when they're in 2015 george and lorraine come to visit marty in his future house and george is actually hanging upside down you know, on, a, on the ortho left because he he threw his back out well that was actually designed to disorient the audience members so you wouldn't look too much
1: at george's face and realize it wasn't crispin glover yeah, that's one of those things. That they'll just put them upside down. Uh, I want to talk about the movie. But I was just going to say one thing about the Delorean. I mentioned Leah Thompson. One of the things about the DeLorean is, is like it's such a cool, exotic, you know, vehicle. But Seamus actually bought one. Did he really? Yeah, because it's a Delorean, right? Right. It's it's like I wanted to buy Paul Stanley's guitar from the Animalize tour because you just want to have that. When you actually look at it now in 2018 or 17, I mean, it's pretty clunky looking. Yeah, it looks, it does not look half as cool as it did in the movie. But it's still, it's like, ah, oh, you got a Delorean. That's great. And then you look at it, you, it's like, this is it. Where's the flux capacitor? So
0: it was crazy in Houston, where I, I'm based in Houston, you know, along with book. And the DeLorean headquarters randomly is in Houston. Oh, wow. So they still, you know, they're making cars. You know, they are they have a whole warehouse of parts. It was really cool. I got to go tour the facility, and they have boxes from, like, West Germany and stuff that, are, that aren't even opened yet because, you know, he bought him out of the bankruptcy. What happened with, you know, John DeLorean and the whole drug case with the FBI? DeLorean went under. This guy, Stephen Wynn from the U.K., bought it. And it was cool. But when I walked in, Chris, they actually had— a replica time machine in the showroom with a working flux capacitor you could turn the time circuits on it made all the noises and then i was like man i gotta drive one of these i gotta see what it's like and you're right it's kind of like a like a real expensive go-kart it kind of does, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't move great I,
1: know. I was like i don't think this thing could get to 88.8 miles per hour <laughs> that's
0: what i thought too i was like does this go zero to 88 in like seven days <laughs> yes yeah, exactly so slow oh so worried about you ever since you ran off the other night. Are you okay? Oh, oh, I'm sorry, I have to go. Isn't he a rainbow
1: So let's talk about the movie and, and kind of I know you know so much trivia about it, and I mean let's talk about kind of the genesis of it, because there are so many behind-the-scenes tales, some that we know, some that we don't really know. Just about what makes this movie so great and kind of how how did it come into fruition. Uh, you mentioned that it started when they found the the, the the yearbook and all that sort of thing, but there was a lot of different elements to the script when they first started writing it that completely changed over the course of the development time. Oh yeah, I mean, well, like with anything, I mean, I'm
0: sure when you were writing your books or even when you're working on a match or what have you, you might have an idea of how you want to go into the finish or you. Oh, oh man, it'd be great if we hit this spot. And then, you know, you get out there and you got to say, oh, well, that's not really working. i got to change this. Or, oh, you know, that's not connecting the same way. Yeah. It was the same thing with this. They always wanted to do a time travel story, Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis. They had worked on several things together. They even wrote a movie when they were in college called Bordello of Blood, which was like a vampire brothel movie. They made that. Dennis Miller was in it. Yeah. And then they made it for Tales from the Crypt. Uh, it finally was uh, was made. But... That was something that they had worked on. You know, They worked on used cars. They worked on a, on a lot of projects, and they were trying to find the right one. They even wrote 1941, the Steven Spielberg movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, okay. So there's a lot of things that they worked on, and they were trying to figure out this time travel movie. But at, at first, there wasn't a DeLorean. It was a refrigerator. That was the way that they were going to travel through time. Wow. There wasn't Einstein the dog. It was a, a monkey, uh, you know, a chimpanzee. Doc Brown was Professor Brown. <laughs> Uh, you know there were all these like small little things it wasn't the enchantment under the sea dance it was the springtime in paris dance just all the things that are so iconic they were they were different there was just little tweaks
1: wasn't it too like with the refrigerator didn't they need uh, they were supposed to like the way they get back to the future was a nuclear blast
0: yeah so 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 the climax of the movie where they were going to go to a nuclear testing site and actually, blow up the refrigerator so he could go back, and then it ended up being too expensive, so they had to figure it out later.
1: Which they did use in Indiana Jones and Kingdom of the Skulls, by the way, which is awful. That movie gets a lot of flack. I think it's a little bit better than people say that it is. I'm saying that scene: Indiana Jones hides in a refrigerator and survives a nuclear blast. Yeah,
0: yeah, a little ridiculous,
1: a little <laughs> yeah. ridiculous. But yeah, so I mean, that was used eventually. But yeah,
0: so there's all these things, and um. I even remember reading the thing Bob Gale said that it wasn't going to be a DeLorean at first. It was actually going to be a Corvette. Or the studio said, hey, we know you want to use this DeLorean. What if we put Doc Brown in a Corvette? You know, a red Corvette. We could do great p- product placement. And, he's, and Bob Gale's response is, Doc Brown doesn't drive a fucking Corvette. <laughs> <laughs> so there are all these things. So they had to put it together. But also, Chris, when you think about it, there you, know, you talked about how you got to be a little bit older to realize all the you know maybe themes of back to the future cuz there's that weird kind of Oedipal relationship that Marty has with Lorraine yes that was actually a real tough sell obviously when they're trying to pitch this movie like when you say hey this guy goes back in time and his mom falls in love with him and you know wants to you know <laughs> do him essentially i
1: mean and th- and that's the thing Brad like having just watched it I actually watched it on, on July 3rd which was the, the 35th anniversary I can see your point. Like for us talking about it, I mean, we know the overall how it turns out. But to pitch that how, to a studio executive was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Time travel and a DeLorean? and Now this guy's going to, tr- mom tries to pick up the sun? Like, no, <laughs> absolutely not. Well, what was funny
0: was, though, when they're actually pitching it, you know, Fast Times at Ridgemont High was big, Animal House, Natural Lampoon, stuff like that. So they're thinking, OK, well they're pitching it to these studios and the studios actually said, well, this isn't like a raunchy enough teen comedy. We needed like a little bit more sex in there, a little bit, maybe drug use something to make it a little bit more raunchy.
1: That was the era. uh, That was the era of the teen sex comedies.
0: Right? So there was actually not enough sex in it for a lot of studios. And every studio said, Hey, you know who would love this? Disney. Disney would love this. Go pitch it to Disney. So finally, after meetings and meetings and meetings and meetings, the bobs go and they pitch it to Disney. Disney's like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> we can't put this on the screen. We can't have right. you know moms and sons making out with each other and the son waking up with his purple underwear in his mom's bed. Like There's some <laughs> real problems here. But yeah. finally, finally they got it You know, uh, with a guy named Frank Price who was running Columbia at the time went over to Universal and Steven Spielberg stepped in with Amblin Entertainment and they're finally able to get it greenlit.
1: See, and that's the secret because obviously at the time, even now, but especially then, Spielberg was the guy. You know, he was the J.J. J J Abrams that anything he touches turns to gold. Now, did Spielberg direct Back to the Future? No, so he produced it, but he
0: was actually in on the script from the beginning because uh, he went, he knew the Bobs from from film school, and they had a relationship already. But like I said, they were working on a couple movies with him, like nineteen forty one, which was you know a bomb for Steven Spielberg at the time. People were like, uh, you know, this didn't really connect like Jaws or Close Encounters, right? So the Bobs actually. Even though Steven wanted to be involved, they stepped away from him and they said, hey, we just don't want to be those guys who is, you know, we're friends with Steven Spielberg. And that's how all of our movies get made, because we're friends with Steven. That's why they were shopping it around to everybody. And then finally they came back to Steven because they said, hey, you were in this from the beginning. You wanted to be a part of this. We want you to be involved. And that's how Steven stayed on. And that's why you even see him Back to the Future 2 there's like a reference to Jaws 19 directed mm-hmm. by Max Spielberg, you know, cause he had definitely a, a heavy influence on it.
1: So is is he definitely, is he listed as producer? Is it Steven yeah. Spielberg presents or produced by Steven Spielberg? Yeah. Steven Spielberg presents. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Cause once again, that was kind of the magic touch at the time to have that involved, especially for a story like this. There's a great, there's a great story in your book that is such a classic studio executive Tell the story about what the one dude wanted to actually call the movie. Oh,
0: (laughs) yeah. So uh, the producer, Sid Scheinberg, who was actually, by all accounts, like everyone in the cast said he was great to work with, real easy. And Steven Spielberg tells this story of, you know, they're going through it. And Sid actually had a couple of ideas of, let's do Doc Brown instead of Professor. Why don't you make him a dog instead of a chimp? Some of those things. So some good ideas. And then he was thinking, hey, you know, this title kind of sucks. Back to the future. It doesn't make any sense. How do you go back to the future? It makes no sense. (laughs) And there's a scene, if you remember, when Marty actually goes back to 1955 Hill Valley. He ends up in this barn, and he gets out of the DeLorean, and he's wearing his radiator suit, and he gets out of the DeLorean, and this old farmer, you know, farm family, the Peabodys. They think that he's an alien, and the kid has a comic book, and he says, "Look, he's already mutated into human form. Shoot him, right." So they think that he's an alien and the name of the uh, of the comic book was Space Zombies from Pluto. And so this producer said, what you should call this movie, the perfect title that's going to sell this movie, it's going to be number one at the box office if you call it Spaceman from Pluto. That should be the name of the movie. And this is serious, right? Dead serious. He said, this is the only way this movie's going to be successful. You have to name it Spaceman from Pluto. It's a catchy title. It's hot. Everyone's going to love it. And Steven Spielberg was like, Holy crap, like this is the worst title I've ever heard. But he's <laughs> been he's been so nice to us and he's given us so much for this movie. How do I tell him like this sucks? So he actually wrote a memo back to Sid and said, Thanks for sending that title down. We all had a big laugh out of it. It really started our day off great. Uh, thanks for the laugh and then he never heard back from him again so he was able to make it sit uh, uh, back to the future
1: it's lucky to, lucky that vince mcmahon wasn't producing it vince McMahon, it's not a laugh that's what we're calling it you know like the typical like studio like back to the future won't work but spaceman from pluto will yeah if you name it that it's got a shot
0: back <laughs> from the future it makes no sense and when you think about it now Back for the Future, such an iconic title. Just the title of it is iconic. So to think, if the movie was called Spaceman from Pluto, we probably
1: would have never seen it. Well, yeah, and <laughs> it's classic, too, because they actually use it, you know, to, it's time to go back to the future. Yeah. yeah that's where it is. <laughs> yeah, how do you work that in? You can't work Spaceman from Pluto. It makes sense when you're in the 50s going back to the future. If you're in, the, in 1985, going back to the future doesn't make sense, but... In 1955, it does. There's actually a, a movie that came out a couple years ago with Jack Black called uh, The House
0: with the Clock in Its Walls or something like that. Mm-hmm. And actually, when you see it, there's a movie theater in the background. And
1: on the marquee, the name of the movie is Spaceman from Pluto.
0: Oh. So it's like a little inside joke for all the Back to the Future fans. That
1: was directed by my friend Eli Roth, so I'm sure that wasn't a coincidence. Yeah. But I need a nuclear reaction to, to generate the 1.21 gigawatts of electricity. 21 gigawatts! 1.21 gigawatts! Great what? Scott! What the hell is a gigawatt? How could I have been so careless? 1.21 gigawatts? Tom, how am I gonna generate that kind of power? It can't be done, can it? Talk a little bit about the casting because the original casting of Marty McFly was not Michael J. Fox. Yeah.
0: Actually, so the filmmakers thought when they wrote Marty McFly, they said, you know, who'd be a perfect Marty McFly is Michael J. Fox. So they they went to um, at the time, Gary Goldberg was the producer of this show called Family Ties. And Family Ties was a massive sitcom at the time in the 80s. And Michael J. Fox played a character named Alex P. Keaton. And he was one of the biggest stars on television. But Gary Goldberg, who ran the show, said, hey, there's no way I'm letting him stop filming to go do this movie. I'm just not going to do it. Right. So they said, okay, whatever. We'll go to the next option. The next option was a guy named Eric Stoltz, who was a, a, a well-known actor at the time. And you know he's done great work since. He did a movie, Mask, that a lot of people knew him from. Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction he was in later in the 90s, um, the Quentin Tarantino movie. So they said, okay, we're going to go with Eric Stoltz. So they cast Eric Stoltz to be Marty McFly, and they actually shot Chris seven weeks of footage wow. with Eric Stoltz. Seven weeks? Seven weeks. If you talk to certain guys like uh, Christopher Lloyd says it, Don love who plays Mayor Goldie Wilson, even Tom Wilson who plays Biff Tannen, they all said, we were done with our scenes. We had shot everything for the movie. We were done. Bob, uh, Gail, and Zemeckis, again, they were watching the dailies, which is you know, the, the, you know know the all the scenes that they shoot for the day, and they're kind of cutting some of the footage together, and Robert Zemeckis who directed the movie said, he's just not funny. Because the character of Michael J. Fox is such a, uh, or Marty McFly rather, is such a reactive character. Mm -hmm. He's a fish out of water. And a lot of the fun parts of it is him reacting to you know, my mom's got the
1: hats for me and Mm -hmm. you know, this is heavy and these big, you know, uh, reactions. Even something little like when he's putting his pants on and falls down. Right. Like even little falls like that, he just makes it work so well. And I guarantee he just came up with that on the spot, you know? Yeah, he's, he's
0: one of those guys and I think that you know he he knows how to use his physical abilities as an actor and and, and you know his size he's a smaller guy and he, but he knows how to use that to his advantage and I, I guarantee you those are all improv things so Eric Stoltz was playing this like it was serious and he actually was in full method actor mode so he had everybody on the set call him Marty. You gotta t- call him Marty. Wow. I'm, I'm I'm Marty McFly. Don't say anything else. He's reacting to the characters like they're actually people. So uh, people in the in the movie, he was acting like it was real, and that wasn't the right sensibility for the character of Marty McFly. It didn't have the life in it. It didn't have the fun in it. He was more scared, but not this the reactions that we got from Michael J. Fox. So they shot with him for seven weeks. They'd almost finished. And the studio actually gave them a deadline and said, if you don't finish this movie by a certain time, we're just going to scrap the whole production. Wow. So Robert Zemeckis was kind of freaking out. And he's like, what am I going to do? Because if I I finish the movie with Eric Stoltz, it's not going to be what I want. It's not going to be great. And I might never get to make a movie again. Because he had just made Romancing the Stone, which is the only reason that he had actually gotten the green light to be the director for Back to the Future. So he called Steven Spielberg in, and they they watched the footage, and Steven said, "Yeah, Eric Stoltz just he's just not funny." So they had to make the decision after seven weeks, almost finishing the whole movie, to let him go and fire him.
1: Brad, isn't that something that you would find? I mean, I remember when, like Apocalypse Now, like Martin Sheen came in. I think he had a heart attack and went nuts, or whatever. Or, the, or no, Harvey Harvey, Harvey Keitel, Keitel was yeah. Yeah, but it obviously might be different because I think, like you said, he might have lost his brains, but. If it was something where you know that the person isn't clicking, why would it take seven weeks to figure that out? You think they would know that after the first week? Well, I, I think that they did, but again, they had that mandate from the studio
0: of you've got to finish this film by a certain date, and their number one choice wasn't available, so they had to go to somebody. They thought that Eric Stoltz was as close as they possibly could get to what they wanted. Yeah. You know, they they tried to finish the movie with him, but again, they just seven weeks is a real long time, and I think it was one of those things where you're probably lying to yourself. I mean, I know that sometimes I'm so, you know, when I'm working at reality wrestling, I have this idea that I'm going to pitch to Booker of the storyline and how it's going to be great. And, you know, Booker gives the go ahead with it. And we are watching it play out in the ring and you know, to, you know, when you're watching it, sure. this isn't working, this isn't what I thought, but
1: you're lying to yourself. You're saying, okay, but we're going to, we're going to figure it out. We'll, we'll get there. You yeah, know? it wasn't bad. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't have that magic to it. Yeah, you know, right? It wasn't bad. So how did they, how were they able to finally get Michael to do the, the movie? So after they, they let go of Eric Stoltz, they went
0: back to Gary Goldberg from Family Ties, and they convinced him. They said, hey, we'll do whatever it takes. You know, we'll film at around your schedule. We'll film in the morning. We'll film at night. We'll film on the weekend. Whenever we can, we just need Michael. And he goes, okay, I'll give you my blessing, but he's got to want to do it. Mm-hmm. So Gary Goldberg brought Michael J. Fox into his office. He had the script to Back to the Future in like a manila envelope. Very like movie villain-esque, right? <laughs> and he says, hey. I'll give you my blessing to do this movie, but you have to know Family Ties comes first. So you have to do your full commitment, all the episodes of Family Ties, Monday through Friday, no matter what. Um, So I want you to take the script home. I want you to read it. And if you want to do it, you have my blessing. But I want you to think real hard on it. And Michael J. Fox picked up the manila envelope, and he put it right back down on Gary Goldberg's desk. set. It's the best script I've ever read. I can't wait to do it. Really? Even without reading it? He never read it. He just knew, hey, if Steven Spielberg's in it, and he knew Crispin Glover from some work that they had done together, if Crispin Glover was on Family Ties, and he said, if Crispin's in it, this has got to be great. Because at the time that he was actually filming Teen Wolf, oh. he uh, he saw Crispin Glover and heard that, oh, they're scouting locations for this new Steven Spielberg movie. And Michael J. Fox is like, I've got like this <laughs> fake hair and pubes glued to my face. <laughs> And Crispin's working on a Steven Spielberg movie. How did this go wrong? So So he was in No Matter What. Yeah, No Matter What. And he ended up just making the
1: perfect Marty McFly. Has Eric Stoltz ever done any interviews about, about how he felt getting let go after seven weeks? I mean, that must have been a real kick to the ego there. I've sent him a multitude of direct messages on Twitter, emails,
0: called his agent, sent into his PR. I've tried everything. He's ne- I've never found anything where he talks about it publicly. And I'm sure it's like, hey, Eric, you know, there's this
1: big movie that everybody loves nearly 40 years later. Yeah. But it's not like he didn't have a pretty damn good career. I think it would seem, you never know. If it was me, after all that time, I'd say, listen, I was super pissed, but, you know, I'll talk about it now. It's been, it's been a long time. Right. Because I'm sure he's got some... Stories to tell as well from seven weeks of filming. Yeah. Well, you know,
0: there's on some of the Back to the Future DVDs that they've released, like 35th anniversary editions and stuff. They put some of the footage in there of Eric Stoltz, you know, you know sitting at the the counter in Lou's cafe or Lou's diner with uh, George, where he looks at him when he's eating the cereal or. When Doc tells him, we got to send you back to the future. Like, they have those scenes with him, and it doesn't look right. It just feels, it feels off.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: But there are, like, um, Tom Wilson, who played Biff Tannen, which is, for my money, top five movie villain ever. Agreed. I put him up there with Darth Vader and anybody else that you want to. I think he's one of the greatest villains ever. And I think, honestly, Tom Wilson, the most talented guy in the entire franchise, he plays seven different variations of the Biff character. Wow. Right, right,
1: right. That's amazing when you think about that.
0: Oh, yeah, because there's, you know, 1985 Biff, 55 Biff, then the alternate 85 Biff uh, in the second movie, and Biff when he's George's servant, and then there's Griff, and then there's Mad Dog 10, and, like, there's so many different characters that he plays. <laughs> Old man Biff in 2015. But when you hear him tell stories about working with Eric, they didn't get along with each other because when they were shooting the scene in Hill Valley High School where Marty and Biff kind of get into a little kerfuffle, if you will, you know about to go to blows before strickland breaks him up eric stoltz was kind of shoving him a little hard you know give him a couple potatoes here and there you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and biff tom wilson said hey if he wants to method this up we could method this up like i don't mind getting mixing up with you so i'm sure eric will have some interesting stories and they haven't confirmed it but they actually say there are still scenes in the movie with eric stoltz's performance in them that are just edited around yeah, because I can see that they shot a lot of the coverage for the other actors, you know, so they ju- go in and they were just shooting Michael J. Foxes. and actually when Michael J. Fox, Marty punches Biff in the in Lou's diner or cafe in 1955, um, they say that's actually Eric Stoltz punching Tom Wilson. Hmm. Um, so there's still stuff in there.
1: You know, what I love about Biff, too, is the reason why he's such a great villain is he's he's, he's a little bit scary. Like you think that he could kill somebody and like there's that scene in the car where he's basically you know raping Lorraine it's still creepy and cringeworthy to this day like had George not shown up he might have just done it you know and that and that's why it works because he's got that vibe like he will kill somebody with his fists and end up in jail it's like a classic Stephen King villain like Ace from Stand By Me or, or one of those, like, he will kill somebody at some point, And he plays the part that way. So it's not just all fun and games with him. But, but you know, to, and you're right, because he's got a, a pretty physical
0: appearance to him. I mean, he's tall. He's broad-shouldered. Yeah,
1: big guy, yeah.
0: He looks like, especially Michael J. Fox, who I think is 5'6 and a 5'7". It's a real great dynamic on camera between the two of those guys. And the thing with Tom, though, to be able to be that physical mean evil character but also be the village idiot at the same time and pull out the duality of that right. is why that performance is so great why and and he was the one who made up stuff like hey Mcfly you Irish bug or why don't you make like a tree and get out of here these are things that he he came up with Tom Wilson came up with that's great that are so iconic to
1: you know the character yeah and, and like you said and I love too just the whole the timeline it's kind of like uh you know Kevin Smith's viewisque universe or, or Tarantino's world where D Jones manure company ends up with like a you know a sanitation system in 2015 or in 1885 it's like a freaking you know a, a, heart, a cart and horse yeah. but they they do that throughout the movie and of course biff always or one of his family members Always ends up covered in manure, <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, you have to make the gag go across, but you know that was one of the things that they thought when they were doing the movie. what better way to show a change in time than evolution of things that we see every day? like you see the Texaco in 1955 where all the guys come out and it's full service, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're airing up the tires and washing the windows, and then you go all the way to 2015 where it's a robot. Texaco that's filling up the cars, the flying DeLoreans, and what have you. They said, what better way to show a passage of time than also through logos? You see the evolution of you know, a Pepsi in 1985, and then he wants a Pepsi free in, in 1955. He's like, hey, pal, if you want a Pepsi, you're going to have to pay for it. You're going to have to pay for it. <laughs>
1: yeah. it. Let me have a tab. <laughs> you got to buy something first.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then it goes all the way. Like I actually had this in my collection in 2015. They actually released these. These are Pepsi Perfects that they had from the movie. Oh, wow. Uh, they released about, I think, a couple hundred of them. Pepsi did themselves. But even the Pepsi perfect when he gets to 2015 and, you know, to show how you have virtual waiters, which we actually kind of have today. They actually got a lot right in 2015. But they thought that was a really great way to show the passage of time.
1: You know, and, and uh, you know, the, the fact that, you know, Mayor Goldie Wilson, Progress is his middle name, go back to 1955 and, you know, Goldie Wilson's working in the soda shop, you know, sweeping up and then says, You know, I'm going to be. Uh, does Marty. Mayor. Does Marty put that idea in his head that he's going to be the mayor? He's
0: like, Yeah, you're right. You're going to be mayor. And then he's like, Mayor. mayor. Goldie Wilson. I like the sound of that. And what's funny is there's actually a. Red Thomas was the mayor's name at the time in 1955, and his campaign slogan was, Progress is his middle name. Right. And that's another thing. They say, as more things change, the more they stay the same, especially in politics.
1: Well, but that's where he got the, that's where Goldie got the yeah. idea from. You know, I'm gonna clean up this town. Great start by sweeping the oh, floors. I, <laughs> Mayor, but I, I just, you know, the, the older I get, the more I really appreciate those little things, because because it is, really is, and my favorite movies, whether they're comedies like Spinal Tap or Big Lebowski or whether it's something like Pulp Fiction or Inception, the more you watch it, the more you notice and the more you see. And Back to the Future is one of those. You can't just watch it once. There's so much going on. And it's so well done. Like, you know, Jennifer writes, let me give you my grandma's number on the piece of paper that tells them how they can get the lightning, you know, it's just everything. There's really zero plot holes in that film about massive time travel and alternate universes. And that's what I love about it. Talk about one of the most well-written scripts of all time. Well, it was one of those things that they say, this
0: was screenwriting one-on-one. Everything that we say is going to pay off later. Right. I mean, you even say when, when you see him at the beginning and they're talking about... Uh, Oh, you know, I remember when I first met your father. You know, what were you doing, George Bird watching? And then you find out that he was a peeping Tom back in the day. (laughs) But they're setting it all up. Oh, you know, we first kissed at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. That was the night of the famous Hill Valley lightning storm. And they were just giving you all this information. And they were front-loading this exposition for it to pay off. And even... Uh, when they when when Marty and Doc go to the the J C Penney parking lot at Twin Pines Mall, it's a great one. Uh, that's when Doc's talking about. I remember when all this was farmland. Old man Peabody wanted to breed pine trees, and that's why it's Twin Pine Mall. Well, when Marty goes back to 1955, he runs over one of the two twin trees. And then it becomes Lone Pine Mall in the next (laughs) day. It's all stuff like that. And and they were great at doing that throughout all three movies. You even said like A. Jones manure turned into D. Jones. Mm -hmm. It was a family thing. They did that so many times throughout the movie. And there's so many Easter eggs. Like even in the opening shot where you see all the clocks in Doc's lab, there's actually a clock of a guy holding on to one of the arms of the clock hanging off of it. Uh, on one on Doc's you know little lab, like Doc does at the end of the movie, oh wow. and and that was that was actually a reference to a, a an actor named Harold Lloyd in a film called S- Safety Last, where he's holding on to the clock. And they show you that. He was
1: like an original Jackie Chan. There was no stunt man. He actually was holding on to this clock, right thirty five stories up or whatever it was right. and 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 they show you that in back to the future. They show like a little model of
0: him hanging on to it, and that pays off at the end of the movie where. Doc's hanging from the clock tower and uh, it's so many so many great things like that even I still even after writing this book watching these movies dozens and dozens and dozens of times looking for everything I still find things every rewatch that I didn't notice before. Um, like I was just watching Back to the Future Two, and when Marty goes to the antique shop, there's actually a little stuffed doll of Roger Rabbit because uh, Zemeckis, Bob Zemeckis did Who Framed Roger Rabbit with Christopher Lloyd. There's all those kind of things. Or the name of the mall uh, is the the Clock Tower Mall in 2015, and the logo is a clock tower with lightning strike.
1: Wow! And these are things I'm just now seeing after decades. And not to get too into because that's the whole of the show, but I, I think anybody that doesn't appreciate I mean, they definitely, like, one is the best, two is the middle, three is the third. I know you, you've had shows that say three is, is the best, but to me,
0: mm-hmm.
1: part two is super underrated as, as one of the best written scripts. Like, one is a little bit more basic in its time travel. Yeah. Two has much more time-space continuum. And like I said, I don't want to get too deep into it, but I have to mention to anybody listening to this that maybe hasn't seen part two or hasn't seen part two in a while, go back and watch it, even as a standalone, because it's pretty f-ing brilliant.
0: Yeah, you know, it's so weird. And I think it's like, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, who's on your Mount Rushmore wrestling? And, and you're like, oh, it's Flair, Hogan, yeah. you know, Rock, Austin. And then it changes, though, right, all the time. You're like, oh, well, you got to put Taker in there. You, oh, you got to put Macho Man. And it's the same thing with Back to the Future when people ask me, well, you know, rank them one to three. And sometimes I say three's my favorite. Sometimes I say one. But recently two has been one of those that I keep going back and watching. Yeah. Because think about how great of an idea it was. Because the original script was written as one movie. It was going to be called Back to the Future Paradox. And they were going to go, so two and three was going to be one film. Oh, and it was going to be called Paradox? Yeah, it was going to be called Paradox. And there's a script online of the original draft that you can read. And they actually didn't go back to 1955. They went to the 1960s, and Lorraine was like a flower child. And there's all the stuff with JFK. And real weird. And then they had the idea of separating it in two. And it was Robert Zemeckis who went to his writing partner and said, You know, we have the opportunity with a time machine to do something that no one's ever done. We can go back into the first movie.
1: Oh, wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We can
0: actually see it from a different view. We can see it from a different angle. And that's what's really cool about the second film when they get back to 1955. Right. And you're seeing the familiar scenes of Back to the Future 1, but you're seeing them from a different angle. Like Marty's in Strickland's office and he's seeing, you know, uh, George knock Biff out or he's watching himself play uh, Johnny Be Good. You know, he's saying, oh, you know, not bad. And, And being able to know... And then what's great about that, Chris, too, is as an audience member, you know what's about to happen. So, you know,
1: oh, man, if something screws up here, what's going to, oh, man, that's going to set up the third movie. They're, they're changing. They have to redo the events in 1955 to not change time that they already redid in 1955 to not change time, right? Right. Give me, give me a tab. Tab? I can't give you a tab. let you order something. Right. Give me a Pepsi free. You want a Pepsi, pal? You're going to pay for it. Let's talk a little bit about the rock and roll element of the movie, because that's another thing that I just gravitated to as a 14-year-old kid in a, in a high school rock and roll band. Let's just go right to the Huey Lewis tune. I mean, has there ever been a better opening track for a movie that fits the vibe, that doesn't actually say, you know... I mean, back in time is the ending credit, but the, yeah. the, the power of love does not is not called back to the future. It doesn't have anything to do with the future. But it, the power of love, and that's what the movie's all about, the power of love to get back to Jennifer and the power of love to get his family together. And it's like, did Huey write this music after seeing this movie or was it just one of the greatest coincidences ever lyrically and also tonally and, and, and feel wise of, of, of the way that the riff is? I mean, it's such a perfect song to open this movie.
0: Uh, it, it's great, and you actually—if you talk to different people, they tell you different stories. So it's hard to kind of figure out if he did it before or he did it when he hurt, when he saw the movie, because they came to Huey Lewis in the news because they were, you know, huge at the
1: time. They were hot at the time, yeah.
0: Yeah, sports was out. I mean, it was a—it was a big. They were a big act. They said, "We want you to do it." And Huey actually said the same thing that you did. Well, I don't want to write a song about time travel. And they're like, "Hey, no, like whatever you want to do, like it's up to you." Either he had the power of love, or he was working on it, or he thought it could fit it. But you're right. That is one of those iconic pieces of music that just when you think of Huey Lewis now, you have to think of Back
1: to the Future. It's one of the first things you think of is the power of love. It's it's maybe his biggest song ever. It could be his biggest song. Yeah, absolutely. And, and definitely one of his best for sure. Top two, top three. Oh, absolutely. And, and even back in time. But you're right. The elements of that song fit
0: so well because Marty's complete motivation for everything that he does in the movie. Is not selfish. It's for other people. It's for the power of love. You might say, "Oh well, he wanted to make sure he was born." Sure. Yeah. But it was I got to get back and see Jennifer. You know, I love her. Look, look at her. Look at this doc. This says everything. When he shows doc the flyer, it says, "I love you." I got to get back to her. My family. I got to make them fall in love. My brothers and sisters. I I love them. I want my family to be something. So you're right. And then to even have him though be in the movie. And reject his own song, Huey Lewis. (laughs) That's
1: right. Yeah, yeah. Because he plays
0: I guess the principal or what have you. One
1: of the not the principal, but like one of the He's the head of he's the head of the talent selection for the Battle of the Bands. And Chris Hayes, the guitar player, is his assistant as well. Right. Yeah. And
0: it's funny, Marty's band is called the Pinheads, which is a quintessential like 1980s garage band name the pinheads
1: yeah and they're playing power of love and he rejects it you know i'm sorry you're just too darn loud but once again to come back to relating what we're doing later the band is playing and if that band doesn't finish the song you know uh george and lorraine don't have their first kiss right so it's paramount to get that band back but marvin who's the guitar player has sliced his hand getting marty out of the (laughs) trunk so unless someone knows how to play guitar that ain't happening and marty's like I'm your guy. Right. Which is so like so well-written once again. Yeah, and, and to go back to it, that was one of the things. So they actually wrote
0: this movie in part with what they call the index card method. So they would write something on an index card like Marty invents rock and roll. Wouldn't that be a really fun idea if Marty goes back in time and invents rock and roll? So they put that on the board, and then they say, okay— for him to create rock and roll, we have to establish that he plays rock and roll. So then we got to show him in 1985 playing rock and roll. So what's the first time we see him is he's in Doc's garage with the big amplifier, gets thrown back when he you know hits the riff and says oh, rock and roll. You know? <laughs> and, and, and so it, it it does that. And you're right. So then when you go to 55, and that was one of the things as a kid that I didn't pick up on. Like I knew Johnny B. Good the song, but you know I'm not thinking Chuck Berry, Marvin Berry. Oh, wait a minute. Marvin calls Chuck Berry while the dance is going on and say, hey, you know that sound you're looking for?
1: Listen to this. They made it a little bit too obvious for my taste because I'm always looking for the, for the. but when he goes, yo, mm-hmm. hey, Chuck, it's your cousin Marvin. I'm like, I'm in. But then he goes, Marvin Berry, like, <laughs> Berry, get it? Marvin Berry calling his cousin Chuck. But I just love that little thing, too. Like he invented rock and roll. You know, I love little things like that in time travel movies where it's like, oh, OK, so he's the one who's responsible not only for Goldie Wilson being the mayor, but he, he's responsible for rock and roll, too. He invents skateboarding as well in the movie. That's right. <laughs> he takes the girl's scooter off, and he invents skateboarding. They're like, look at him, go!
0: You know, And he's holding on to cars. And, and- that was
1: an old uh, box, what they used to call those. There's a name for those things that in the 50s kids would invent, like box carts or something they would call them. Yeah. He rips the box off and has just the skateboard element to it.
0: So he invents all these things. and And, and, and it's also funny to play off, like, my favorite line in the movie. Um, of all three movies, is, you know, Marty wakes up in his mom's house in 55. He's eating dinner with his future you know, grandfather and, 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 and uncles and whatever.
1: Uncle Joey in the crib because he loves his crib so much. He just cries whenever we take out of it. <laughs> <Take him laughs> so
0: out we just there. leave him in there. But, but at one point when he's trying to figure out where Doc's house is and he goes, wait, a block past Maple, that, that's John F. Kennedy Drive. And, and his, dad, uh, his grandfather goes, well, who the hell is John F. Kennedy? Right. <laughs> that's when Lorraine grabs his thigh. And Marty's like, oh, okay, hey, gotta go, gotta go, and he and he runs out, and he and 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 the grandfather goes, he's an idiot. It comes from upbringing. His parents are probably <laughs> idiots too, you know. And I, I just I love that. But I, I love that they're able to play off JFK, and they even do a a Ronald Reagan joke when when Doc meets Marty and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah.
1: Who, who's the first lady, Jane Wyman? Yeah. Who's the Secretary of the Interior, Jimmy Stewart, or whatever yeah. he says? I suppose Jerry Lewis is a Vice President. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, another great line, too, is by Jason Hervey, who was involved in wrestling for years. Yeah. When it's like, uh, oh, this is the one, you know, where, you know, I've seen this one. This is when he steals the pot roast. He goes, what do you mean? To eat? What do you mean? You've seen this one. It's brand new. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I saw it on a on a rerun. Yeah. What's a rerun? What's a rerun? <laughs> but the, I mean that it's it's one of the also the it's got to be one of the most quotable movies of all time too. I mean even with great Scott and this is heavy and all that stuff. And, oh yeah. And I think that another guy who's just perfectly cast was Christopher Lloyd. Nobody else could have been Doc Brown as great as him.
1: Amazing. And also too, and you can tell us a couple of the other uh, the other people that auditioned. But one of the reasons why he plays it so well is he's basically just playing a smarter version of Jim Ignatowski. Like before Jim Ignatowski from Taxi got burned out on whatever drugs he was taking, he was a genius who created a time machine. That's the way I always looked at it. Like, great Scott Marty! You know? <laughs> but who, who else uh, had auditioned for that? So they considered a whole lot of people. Jeff
0: Goldblum was one of the guys. Yeah, that works. Um, and you could see that. One of the ones that I loved is is on the call sheet was Eddie Murphy. Interesting. They talked about Eddie Murphy in the 80s, you know, at the height of Eddie to be Doc Brown. Uh Gene Wilder was another one you could kind of see. That that was one you could kind of see.
1: Yeah, that would have worked, the Willy Willy Wonka type vibe to it. But, but you know, once again, there's certain roles that were guys were born to play. And I think the leads in this movie, both of them and actually all, all four of them if you include Biff and Lorraine and George. And George too. Exactly. The whole, the whole five of them. You can't think of a better of a better casting. And obviously 35 years of seeing these people, but whoever was hot at that point in time I can't think of anybody better. There might be ones that might have worked as well, like Gene Wilder and Jeff Goldblum, but there wouldn't have been anybody better than Christopher Lloyd in that role in at that time.
0: And you know what's funny is, I'm, I'm a huge Christopher Lloyd fan. I think he's actually great in everything that he's in. And in a, 1985, if you talk to him, he thought he's like, I thought Clue would have been the one that really stuck. <laughs> yeah. Clue the movie, you know, I'm, prof- I'm Professor Plum in that one. I'm Doc Brown in uh in Back to the Future. But he described it as he was, const- Doc was constantly in crisis, which I think is like the perfect way to describe that character. Everything's a big exclamatory, we got to get you back to the, f- money. oh, great, Scott, you know. Yes. Everything that he does is huge and big and he's almost like a uh, like a conductor in an orchestra, the way he moves and he just nailed it. He just completely nailed what that character was.
1: The character too is great too, because he's got, I, I love the 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 term Rube Goldberg, which of course the MacGyver, it would be a modern term of, of these inven- inventions that he came up with. That were so insane and, and the majority of them doesn't work, but it's like Disco Inferno. He had 10 ideas, nine of them sucked and one of them would be like, Phenomenal. you know, the man, the man of a thousand and four holds, for example. And that's what Doc Brown did is he created all these dumb ideas, the, the thought, you know, the mind reader thing and, <laughs> you know, the, the, the opening of the cans into the bowl, like automatic breakfast but what he comes up with in the flux capacitor is that's the winner. That's the moneymaker, the million-dollar score, which, once again, these are parts of our cultural lexicon. As a matter of fact, a great story that I'll, it's very quickly. I met Christopher Lloyd in Japan at a bar once, and he wouldn't talk to me. He would only talk to my friend Luther, Dr. Luther, Lenny and him to hit it off. And I went over to him to say, like, hey, man, hey, 88.8 gigawatts. Hey, I know you. <laughs> And, of course, he was not having it. Probably had 1,800 idiots like me come up to him. And he went, uh, by the way, you're not the first person that said that to me today. And it's 1.21 gigawatts, <laughs> idiot. And walked away. I was like, I mixed up the gigawatts and the miles. But, you know, that's part of our cultural lexicon of the gigawatts and and, and and the 88.8 miles per hour. Yeah. That's another thing I just love about this movie. That isn't quotable. It's it's much like Seinfeld. It's become part of our lives for all generations.
0: Yeah, and the thing is, even in Seinfeld, actually on Jerry's, in his apartment on Jerry's bookshelf, he had Back to the Future 3 was one of the movies. Really? Yeah, uh uh-huh. It was that (laughs) and like Pretty Woman and something else, you know. It is one of those things to where as soon as you hear DeLorean, no one thinks, oh, that was like a sports car in the 80s, right? No, you think Back to the Future when you hear 88 miles per hour, gigawatt, even when I think of Clock towers, Yeah. The first thing I think of is Back to the Future. And they really had a way of Everything just worked. It all worked. And even the sequels, they all work. Uh, and even seeing the the different versions of the time machine. And think about this, though, so Chris. You think about Back to the Future and how iconic the movie is, but Back to the Future 2 has some of the most iconic things from all the Back to the Future in it. The hoverboard, right? When you right. think of the hoverboard, that's Back to the Future 2. It wasn't in the first one. But everybody knows the hoverboard. Yeah. Everybody knows uh, the Flying DeLorean. They continued even four years after the original in 89 when Back to the Future 2 came out. They still figured out how to impact pop culture.
1: You know what's interesting too is that um, we're talking about the skateboard and the hoverboard. and, And like you said, people think that that's the first one. But the first one is just the skateboard. But that's actually like... I don't know how they did the stunts for that, but that's actually Michael J. Fox holding on to the back of the pickup truck mm-hmm. because they show a close up of him and they show him driving away. There's no CGI backing in those days. I'm like, how in the hell did the studio allow their star to basically, you know, bumper shine, as we called it in Canada, on the back of a pickup truck on a on a skateboard? I, yeah, here's the thing. They had, must have much had some great insurance because
0: not only was he doing that. He was also probably sleep deprived because he would do, like I said, family ties all day. Right. They would shoot a lot of these scenes, Chris, at like three, four in the morning. Wow. Uh, You know, on the weekends, whenever they could. Michael said at one point, they would literally drive him to the the set of back to the future from family ties and then drive him home. And somebody would literally have to carry him and put him in bed so he could get like an hour and a half of sleep and wake up and do everything again.
1: When the movie came out, was it uh, I mean, obviously now we're in big budget land and Michael J. Fox is one of the biggest stars in the world. Steven Spielberg. So I'm, I'm assuming that the studio was expecting a hit. Was it a hit right off the bat? I, I, unlike you, I, I did go see it in the theater. And I remember back in those days, especially in the summer, every weekend something came out and you would dictate the calendar of your summer by which movies were coming out seriously because the because mo- once again there, there was v- minimal VCR but there was no Amazon Hulu, Netflix movie channels so if you wanted to see it you were going to that theater and I remember people were talking about that movie for months and months and months
0: yeah I mean the, the studio whenever they finished it and they got the final cut together um, the studio was so impressed with what they saw they actually moved the release date up which rarely happens right normally studios push release dates back they said this is going to be a hit. We need this to come out during the three-day weekend of July 4th. Right. That's why it came out on July 3rd. It was originally supposed to come out. I'm sure just showing you stuff in the collection here. But you know, this is the promotional button that says July 3rd. I'm going back to the future. Oh, wow. But the original logo and date was July the 19th. Um, and it was supposed to be in blue. So they're going to have it July 19th. And they were so confident. They said, let's move it a couple weeks up. And let's let's go with this because they knew they knew that what they had. And, mm. and me, I mean, again, to go back to wrestling, you know, being at the desk when I'm watching a match and I'm calling it when I when the one, two, three comes and you hear the crowd's reaction. You already know you saw an instant classic. Right. Or, or, or when you when you go out there with, you know, whether it be Booker or Triple H or whomever you worked back in the day at WrestleMania or, or Monday Night Raw, even a house show, you know, as soon as it's over. Wow, we got him. Yeah. And the studio knew as soon as they saw it. Oh, we got them. Th- this is a hit. And it was the number one movie of the year it came out. And, you know, there were a few other movies that came out in 1985 that we talk about The Goonies, Breakfast Club, Color Purple, St. Elmo's Fire. There were, there were some big movies that came out, but Back to the Future, far and away, was the number one of that year.
1: But just completely ignored by the Academy at the Oscars.
0: It won an award for sound editing. But, you know, that's like, you know, best cinematographer that came in on a Tuesday afternoon to <laughs> had 30 minutes. You know,
1: I mean, you're talking best support. You know, if that was nowadays, you could have made a stand for maybe not Michael J. Fox's best actor, but Crispin Glover and Christopher Lloyd is best supporting and definitely best picture and best director, best screenwriter, too. Yeah. I, I would be curious to see what one in 1985 was probably freaking Amadeus or some stupid <laughs> thing, you know, something like that. But.
0: Probably. Those blockbuster movies don't get the love from the Academy. Sure, they'll always get like the effects, yeah, or something like that. But we think about Pirates of the Caribbean and, and how great Johnny Depp was as Captain Jack. He got an Oscar nomination for the first one, right? He gets a big Oscar nomination, but that's kind of like a a, a rare one. Not a lot of not a lot of those big action movies tend to get the, that love, or or the big blockbusters. Maybe you know Heath Ledger's Joker got it, and some stuff. But I, I think that Crispin Glover. Would have been a shoe-in for best supporting actor, um, best director, best screenplay. At least
1: nomination, you know. At least a nom. So I'm looking at Oscars for nineteen eighty-six. Mm-hmm. Best picture out of Africa. <laughs> <laughs> best actor William Hurt, Kiss the Spider Woman. Here okay, I can I can dig this for, for the winner. Best supporting actor Don Amici from Cocoon. Okay. He was pretty good in that. So, but you know, but as as far as uh uh not even getting nominated, so there you go. That's kind of what you're, and, and directing Sydney Pollock Pollack out of Africa, like that's a typical Academy deal. But um, as we start to wind down here, why did it take so long to, between Back to the Future and Back to the Future Two to release the sequel? Four years.
0: The thing was, we all remember the end of the movie where you know Marty's finally gets the truck, he's back with Jennifer, and then Doc says, Marty, you got to come back with me. We aware Back to the Future. You know, something's got to be done about your kids, right? And then they fly off into the scene. Well, many people remember it saying to be continued at the end of that movie, but it actually, in the theatrical version, never said that.
1: Oh. That
0: was on the home video version they put that. Really? Yeah. So the Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis, they said that was just a joke. Like, we thought that would be a cute way to end the movie. Like, oh, they go on another adventure that we never see ever again, right? Yeah. But when it was a hit, obviously the studio calls and says,
1: Hey, would y'all do another one of these and it made it made 390 million off of a 19 million budget. <laughs> yeah, which is ridiculous. So yeah, I'm I'm assuming they were calling to ask for another one. So they call
0: and ask for the other ones and and you know, they were like, "Sure, like we'd love to do it as long as we can get Marty and Doc back. If we can get them back, we can create a story.
1: The characters. You mean, you, you mean the actors, right? Yeah.
0: The, the actors. Yeah, yeah. If we can get Michael J. Fox and, and Chris, Christopher Lloyd back, we can make another story. And then they signed on, and they said, as long as the Bobs are doing it, we're in. And they tried to get as many people as they could back, and that's where they had the issue with Crispin Glover, uh, who didn't come back. And even Claudia Wells, who plays Marty's girlfriend, Jennifer, in Back to the Future One, she couldn't come back because her mother got ill. Really. Yeah, she took a break from acting, so that's why it's Elizabeth's shoe.
1: Wearing a terrible wig, by the way. <laughs> yeah,
0: Very 80s. Very <laughs> yeah. 80s. Claudia Wells, by the way, I think one of the most breathtaking women in 1985. Like, oh my gosh. Agreed. So they try to get as many back as they could. And then they had to write it. So, you know, they didn't expect it. It's not like today where, if, you know, they signed Robert Downey Jr. to Iron Man. We know we're going to do seven movies
1: with him. Yeah, they, yeah, you're right. They signed him for a five-picture deal or whatever it is. Right.
0: They didn't have any of that. They thought there was going to be a one-off. So, you know, it took four years, which, you know, they had to write it. They had to come up with it. But they actually shot Back to the Future 2 and 3. Like I said, it was going to be one movie. They split it into two. And they shot him at the same time. Wow. uh, Which was the first time that was done. Well, you know, they did it actually with uh, Three Musketeers and Four Musketeers. They tried to do it with the original Superman movies where, where Dick Donner did Superman 1 and started Superman 2 shooting him at the same time. But this was like the first time it was really done successfully. So they shot Back to the Future 2 and 3 at the same time. And that's why... The the wait between one and two was so long, but the wait between two and three was just six months. And they thought, what a great idea that we could actually put a little trailer together at the end of Back to the Future 2 to show them we're going to go to the West and back to the future three. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it came out six months later.
1: So I just added it up. The the trilogy made just shy under $1 billion, 966 million, which will round up to a billion dollars. I'm sure with inflation, it'd get up there too. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure there's some merch in there where, you know, animation and whatever, and, you know, theme park rides. Do you consider this to be one of the best trilogies, if not the best trilogy of all time? Yeah. So I write about it in
0: the book and, and maybe it's controversial, but, I think it's it's the best pure trilogy of all time. Yeah. and what I mean by that is there's no remakes, there's no reboots, there's no sequel trilogy, there's no prequel trilogy, there's nothing. There's three cinematic stories, and I think the only other one you could contend with is maybe Godfather, but you know, Godfather three kind of takes a big nosedive. I
1: mean, I mean, Back to the Future three for me is not perfect. It's it's a B plus movie where the other two are A pluses. That's my personal opinion. Yeah, Godfather three is is a C C minus tops. And Damien Omen 3 is about a D-minus at this point in time. (laughs) So get the Omen trilogies out of there. So, like, there's any of people like, oh, what about Star Wars? Well, there's been so
0: many Star Wars reboots and remakes. There's nine of them. That doesn't count, Yeah, you know, Jurassic Park, there's, there's five or six. And then there's Indiana Jones, there's four of them. So there's no other pure trilogy, like I like to call it. So that's why I think Back to the Future, you can say it's technicality or whatever, but it's the greatest pure trilogy of all time because there are three stories that are just so much fun you turn your brain off. You enjoy the story that's, that's said. And even people, who, a lot of people tend to kind of agree with you about Back to the Future 3. Not their favorite. The old west, a little weird. I contend that it's most like Back to the Future 1 where you have hmm. Marty and Doc stuck in the past without a, a clear cut way to get back to the future. So they have to figure that out and they do it with the train. Yep. But I, I think it's the best trilogy. And I, I, I've had arguments with people. No one can come up with anything else that can really contend with it. And I think that the fact that we're still talking about it 35 years later and that 35 years later, a publisher would want me to write a book about it. And then I've had a podcast that's gotten all these millions of downloads. It, it really sticks with it sticks with people so much. It's crazy. I've loved it. You know, I'm, I got to actually even compete in the uh, the movie trivia showdown and do a back to the future themed
1: match. Oh, dude, I don't know who, 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 who even contended with you on that.
0: So, so there were some. It's an exhibition, so I can't give out the results or what have you. Oh, okay. It was a pay-per-view of, of sorts. But
1: th- those guys in the movie tribute shmodown, they know their stuff. But I know. I mean, I have to go against Kevin Smith in a couple of weeks on that. I don't know what the hell I'm going to talk about. <laughs> you, you'll be fine. But, you know, even that
0: the fact that people still want to see back to the future content. And, and this book, when, it, when I released it, it went to number one on Amazon in, in the film category. And you know, this is
1: again, 35 years later, but it really, it really is Brad. It's one of those movies with so many spinoffs and, and animation and cartoons. There's not a lot of, of merch, you know, all this other stuff that you see from the Avengers or Batman or star Wars. I would have a Marty McFly action figure here. And now, if there was one, I don't even know if they ever made them. That seems strange to me that such a huge, successful franchise hasn't had merch out the ass, or maybe I just missed it.
0: I mean, there's some, there's some out there. You know, there's actually a book written called uh, the Allman- Back to the Future Almanac that shows some of like, the collectibles and trinkets that have come out over the years. And, of course, you know, I, I've shown you a couple. I, I have several little things like uh, a replica of the Save the Clock Tower. Uh,
1: <laughs> That's awesome. Or, you know, <laughs> the
0: Almanac itself. Oh, that's great. There's the Gray Sports Almanac. Yeah. So, I mean, there's some stuff that they've come out with. But, you know, really, one of the big things for Back to the Future is they did end up having some sort of spinoffs. They had the animated ride. I mean, the animated series that came out. The ride at Universal. Then they had the ride at Universal that was replaced by The Simpsons for some unknown reason <laughs> wow. beyond anybody's understanding. So they, they've been able to capitalize on it. And, you know, everybody still talks about, you know, will there be a Back to the Future 4 or will there be a sequel to it? Um, will there be a remake? I, I kind of hold one of, I guess, the more controversial opinions about it where I'd be w- more than willing to see another Back to the Future movie.
1: I don't think you could ever do it, another one because you, you would expect so much to see, you know, Doc Brown, a.k.a. Christopher Lloyd and Marty McFly, a.k.a. Michael J. Fox. and I don't think you could do that, especially with, with Michael's condition. Or maybe you could, but it would seem a remake, a slight reboot or something like that for this whole new generation would seem something that people might want to check out. Well, like, for me, when that Ghostbusters movie
0: came out a couple years ago, the all-female Ghostbusters, I was kind of hyped for it. I was like, I love Ghostbusters. I liked it. People hated it, though. I liked it. To me, it was okay, right? I I didn't love it. It it didn't give me the same that the other movies gave me. When I left, I thought, man, am I going to not like Ghostbusters anymore because I didn't like this movie? Yeah. And then I watched Ghostbusters 1 and 2 that night, and I still love them as much as anything that I've ever seen. So... That's what I say about Back to the Future. If they do another one and I love it, well, there's more Back to the Future for me to watch, and maybe there's a sequel to the book. And, and there's the thing, like
1: it, I just saw uh, the Vacation reboot uh, a couple days ago. It's actually really good with with the guys, Ed Helms one. Ed Helms yeah. and Christine Applegate, and at the very end, you see Chevy Chase and Beverly D'Angelo. It's it's such a short cameo. I almost wish that they hadn't have even been in it, but you could do that and have. Christopher Lloyd in there or Michael J. Fox just for a second. And then, you know, here comes their kids going to do it. Because once again, it's much like James Bond and Star Wars and Star Trek. It's not so much. It, it's so based on those two characters, but it's also this really cool world that you could go to with. You, you would have to have people that really understood the movie to write it. But that's what J.J. Abrams has done. With Star Wars and Star Trek, so stick him on Back to the Future too. See if you can do that as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that it could be done, and 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 even if you re- wanted to
0: try, like uh, the guy who plays Spider Man, Tom Holland. Everyone says maybe him and Robert Downey Jr.
1: should be the new Marty McFly and Doc Brown, and I could see that. I could see it, and I think that they could pull it off. Once again, yeah, it's been thirty years since Back to the Future three, and they've done reboots ten years later. You know, they they did a Total Recall remake already and they've done jason and friday the 13th and you know they've done remakes for movies that came out five years ago so they could do it yeah i mean they're doing a new beverly hills cop movie if they can do that in, in, in
0: 2020 <laughs> which by the way i think that marty mcfly is probably like one of the greatest cinematic characters ever uh he's up there in my opinion with indiana jones or han solo or any of those guys oh yeah but really my top three is marty mcfly Fletch and Axel Foley, and I, I want to figure out
1: a way that we can get just remakes of all of them. How about how about, how about a, like a like a Marvel universe and just have all three of them in a movie together? Uh, come on, guys, it's all ball bearings these <laughs> days. I love I love the fact too, like Marty, like he, we talk about his small stature, but if you call him a chicken, he'll throw hands with anybody. That's that's <laughs> the word. That's the word that drives him crazy, man. Don't call him a chicken.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, you know, Booker actually told a story the other day where he was talking about how he uh, was, when he first broke out in singles in WCW, he was having to work, in his opinion, all the cruiserweights.
1: I was one of them. And and you were one of them. He mentioned that. And then he said- 225 pounds and I'm a cruiserweight.
0: (laughs) Weight more than he did. He went up to- uh, I think Arn or whoever was running the show that night and said, you know, I'm sick of having to wrestle all these cruiserweights. You know, I got to wrestle Dean Malenko tonight. He, he's a cruiserweight. He said Dean was in the room and just gave him this look like, you're in for a great night, brother. <laughs> just get ready for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so really Marty McFly has that, you know, cruiserweight mentality, I guess. <laughs> Don't call me that because yeah. I, I'll make you feel it. I'll, I'll work a little
1: snug. <laughs> Last question for you. Um, what's your favorite scene in, in in Back to the Future? Man. And... Who's your favorite uh, ancillary character? Oh, that's a great question. There's so many.
0: I actually, in the book, I have a, uh, the last couple of chapters is called The Almanac, where I where I rank my top 10 favorite ancillary characters in the movie and some of my favorite uh, Doc gadgets and what have you. Yeah, yeah, The scene one is so hard because there's so many great ones. But I think that when Marty and Doc are there in the, in the Twin Pines Mall and that time machine rolls out from his truck for the first time and marty goes you built a time machine <laughs> out of a delorean and they ha- and you see it in in action for the first time when it's he's all iced up and smoking and right and, and he runs away from the libyans and he goes back to the past that I means just that whole scene as a as a kid you're like whoa mind blown this is the greatest thing that i've ever seen so I think by default it would have to be that. I still love the scene where they're all sitting at the table in 1955, and his dad, uh, his grandfather, calls him an idiot. I, I love that. <laughs> but ancillary characters, there's so many. There's actually so many great ones. Goldie Wilson is one of them. I think that he's like one of those guys who uh, I call it like a heat check. He only has one scene really in the movie. It's so memorable. The mayor, you know, I'm a run Wilson. from mayor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like the sound of that. So Goldie's up there. Marvin Barry's up there. Even old man Peabody. I'm going to get you, you mutating son of a bitch. You know, and, you know, uh, so there's so many great ones. It's hard to narrow it down to one. I do
1: my best in the book. My favorite scene, I actually have two, but my favorite scene uh, is, is when he, he gets to play Johnny Be Good with uh, Marvin Berry and the Starlighters. And, you know, he failed, he, he didn't get into the battle of the bands. In 1985, but in 1955, he's playing this high school dance, and he's rocking it. And what's cr- what's crazy, he gets to actually, like, and Michael J. Fox, was his idea.
0: He's like, I want to give all these references to gu- the guitar gods. You know, I want to do the duck walk. Yeah. I want
1: to do the windmill. I want to do, you know, sliding on my knee. I want to do all that, and he got to do it. Because Michael J. Fox actually played guitar, too. You see that in, in the Light of Day movie um, with Joan Jett, which is also another forgotten classic. Yeah. The thing that I like, one of the scenes I like the best... To bring it all back home is when he gets back to 1985 and the car breaks down and he has to run to the Lone Pine Mall and he still sees Doc Brown die, get shot, and then realize that he put on the bulletproof vest because he saved the letter and taped it all together. But I love the fact that when you see that for the first time, you think, F- after all that, Doc Brown really still dies. What did he accomplish? Nothing nothing and then he's still alive and it's like that was i thought that was one last little like you're not out of the woods yet guys and a real kind of cool way to end off they did
0: that that whole leading even up to that when marty's in 55 and he's trying to get back to the future and they're timing it with the lightning storm and doc falls off the clock tower and then he has to slide down and connect the cable and then marty's car won't start yeah they did really good job of always keeping you suspense and that one they had
1: a lot of false finishes there a lot of falsies, brother. No, great, great stuff. And then like you mentioned too, the fact that Billy Zane, the Phantom and the heel from Titanic was one of uh Biff's gang members, it was another little touch as well. So, And then
0: for him to come back for
1: the sequels too. That's, was in the right, sequels that's right, He the sequels too, so I, I love The Phantom.
0: That might be the next book. i got to talk about The Phantom. <laughs>
1: I, I, you got to do another yeah. Christy Swanson, Catherine Zeta, 96. Oh, oh, Christy Swanson was awesome at the time. Oh, man. Dude, what a great uh, idea for this. Thank you for sending me the book, and um, I really appreciate talking about this. And like I said, it was really cool to go back and watch that movie, even though I've seen it probably, I don't know, 30 times, whatever it is. But to watch it actually on the 30th anniversary and to talk with you about it was a, was a real blast. So I, I appreciate that.
0: No, Chris, uh, I'm glad that you got the book. I'm glad that you uh, enjoyed the movie, and I think it's give. If I can give people an excuse to rewatch Back to the Future, I think that's a that's a good thing, and I'll take it. Now it's time to go back
1: to the future two and three, Brad. <laughs> no, I really
0: appreciate it, Chris. And then get the book on, you know, all the all the retailers, Amazon, any of that stuff. You think I'm gonna spend the rest of my life in this slop house? Watch it, Goldie. No, sir. I'm gonna make something of myself. I'm going to night school, and one day I'm gonna be somebody. That's right, he's gonna be mayor.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna in... mayor. Now, that's a good idea. I could run for mayor. A colored mayor. That'll be the day. You wait and see, Mr. Carruthers. I will be mayor. I'll be the most powerful man in Hill Valley. And I'm going to clean up this town. Good. You can start by sweeping the floor. Hmm. Mayor Goldie Wilson. I like the sound of that.